Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. For your consideration, the case of G2A.com and the missing $300,000 contract. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about one of the aspects of the current video game industry that doesn't get talked about a lot, and that is gray market key resellers, and in particular, a company that goes by the name of G2A, which has been in the news quite a bit uh, because of problems that developers have been having with its product and service line. So I've pulled up the G2A Marketplace website right now, and they describe what they do in a very kind of genteel fashion, buy and sell games online. They describe it as G2A.com is a reliable and safe marketplace with the best video game deals. G2A.com offers low prices for its online deals, a price match guarantee, and the biggest selection of digital gaming products around. However, G2A.com is not only a great place to buy games, it is also a great place to sell them, which is not a functionality that you see on other digital marketplaces. So if you buy something from Steam, generally, we've talked about it a lot in virtual legality, you're buying a license to that product. Mostly it's non-transferable. There are some exceptions to that. There are gifts and things that you can potentially move around uh, in that ecosystem. But for the most part, when a developer or a publisher sells you a digital license to a game, they're selling it for your personal use, and they have some restrictions in their terms of service or in their end-user license agreement or EULA that restricts what you can do with them. And G2A comes in and says, well, if you've got a key uh, and uh, you can uh, tell us that you haven't used it before, we will put it up on our marketplace and we will allow you to sell it. Some of those instances are going to be okay. Uh, some of those are going to represent wholesaling or other kind of relationships that G2A has with publishers and developers or licenses or keys that you've acquired on a totally legitimate basis and have the right to sell uh, on their platform, even if a developer or publisher doesn't necessarily like it. And that's where the gray market titling comes in. If you think about markets, you've got the normal market, which doesn't really have a color. Uh, and it's where you sell things completely in the open, in the sunlight, with everybody's knowledge. Then you've got the black market, which you're probably familiar with, which is illegal drugs or things that are completely illegal and that you can't even possess and that you aren't allowed to, to buy or sell at all. The gray market is something in between. It essentially says, hey, you've got this thing. We don't explicitly want you to sell it over here on G2A, but we don't necessarily prohibit it. Or if we're talking about terms and conditions or a EULA, we aren't in the business of really enforcing it fully. So even if it's technically a violation of the rules that we've put forth, we're not necessarily going to send you to video game jail for selling it on this platform. That all being said, G2A has created a lot of headaches for developers and publishers uh, because of what a number of people feel is essentially lacks security related to the sourcing for the keys that they've got. I've pulled up a Polygon article from July of this year that says G2A could block some game keys from its platform, but developers have to do the work. And this is in response to GTA proposing G2A. GTA is a very successful video game series from Rockstar. Uh, G2A proposing to have a key blocker 
that would go on their site, provided enough developers signed up for it, and would give give them the key information in order to block the keys that they didn't want to have appear on their marketplace. Polygon describes how G2A operates uh, very succinctly. Keys can be sourced directly from places like Steam, which is an authorized distributor who has agreements with publishers and developers to sell games to consumers. Those codes could also come from wholesalers or even other third-party platforms and services. But, and here's the rub, it's possible to acquire keys with a bot, so a, a programmed system that goes and, and trolls Steam and gets all of the gifts that it can by using various methods and means through some form of identity theft or even to purchase them with illegally obtained credit cards. And the credit card issue is what we're going to talk about today because so many developers and publishers complained about G2A essentially having stolen keys on their marketplace, having people buy those keys that have been essentially stolen, and then all the trouble that comes with that from the developer's perspective. In particular, in this case, credit card chargebacks, where somebody has stolen a credit card, has bought it from this developer or this publisher's uh, platform, their network, their marketplace itself, and has... Uh, wound up getting them fees that the credit card companies put on them because they have to get all of this stuff back for the users that had their credit card information stolen. So in this particular case, G2A has acknowledged the problem to some extent and put forth in July of this year a promise. They said G2A vows to pay devs, developers, 10 times the money proven to be lost on chargebacks, which is a lot of money potentially. Here's the start of this post that they made, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will link it in the description. It's a lot of justification. I actually would read it if we were doing a tone analysis, which you've seen in virtual legality in the past. I would look at it as very defensive. G2A's actual messaging tends to come off that way, very kind of defensive in the way that they are uh, protecting their, their industry model. Uh, and some of that defensiveness, no doubt, comes from the fact that a number of folks are very aggressive against them. Uh, but it also comes off as a little flippant that they don't really care about this issue. And I think that's one of the reasons that it sticks in, in certain people's craws. Uh, but let's take a look at what they said on this particular promise. Let's lay all cards on the table. We will pay developers 10 times the money they lost on chargebacks after their illegally obtained keys were sold on G2A. The idea is simple. Developers just need to prove such a thing actually happened on their stores. To assure honesty and transparency, we will ask a reputable and independent auditing company to make an unbiased examination of both sides, the developer's store and the G2A marketplace. The cost of the first three audits is on us. Every next one will be split 50-50. The auditing company will check if any game keys sold on G2A were obtained using stolen credit cards on a developer's store compliant with card scheme rules from Visa and MasterCard payment provider rules, etc. If so, G2A guarantees it'll pay all the money the developer lost on chargebacks multiplied by 10. We want this process to be transparent, so we will publicly report every step of the procedure, meaning you will get information such as who came forward and what the verdict was, all of which will be published for everyone to see. If you're a developer willing to cooperate, contact the G2A direct team. Now, on its face, that sounds like a good faith promise. Uh, it is a promise to pay these guys money if they lost it because G2A.com exists. Now, if we're looking at this from a lawyer's perspective, I look at some of these things and say, well, independent auditing company selected by G2A is maybe not so independent, especially if they're going to be doing a lot of this. So I'd probably want some kind of power to select it with you and to make sure it's independent or to have two auditing companies that select a third auditing company. We do that a lot in contracts that I've worked on. And then the second part of this, 
the cost of the first three audits is on us. Every next one will be split split 50-50. Again, if I'm negotiating this on a contractual basis, I would prefer to see this done a little bit more like a uh, uh, coach's challenge in football, uh, which is to say, as long as I keep succeeding, as long as the audit finds that you have cost me money and you owe me this 10 times multiple, then I still have free audits. Because as long as you keep doing this, there's no point in time where I should have to pay 50-50 for the fact that you are facilitating loss in my business and all of this money that I'm potentially losing. So I think there are things that could be changed here, but this is a promise where you can see developers that don't like G2A.com saying, okay, fine. Well, if you're going to say that, then I'm going to come back to you and say, all right, let's go through your auditing process. Let's go get 10 times the money I think I can blame on you because that's a lot of money. So I've brought up an article from gamesindustry.biz called Subnautica Dev Demands G2A Pay $300,000 to cover lost chargebacks. Studio calls for controversial marketplace to honor its offer of 10 times compensation. Claire Cleveland, founder and game director at Subnautica developer Unknown Worlds, commented beneath this article sharing his own experience with G2A. Mike Rose is right. Mike Rose being another developer who had commented on G2A and the situation with the key blocker online. It is better for players to pirate than to buy a key off of G2A. He wrote, we paid $30,000 to deal with credit card chargebacks because of G2A. So G2A, if you really want to put your money where your mouth is, you will now pay us $300,000. He reiterated this demand to GTA directly via Twitter. So a couple days ago, earlier this week, you've got someone that actually is calling for real significant money. You see there that it's referenced as the second developer publisher to ask for this. There was an earlier developer publisher who is going through the auditing process who has claimed, I think, about $6,000 in chargebacks, so about $60,000 in funds. But this one, because Subnautica is so popular, I highly recommend playing it. Very, very good game. Uh, it, because it is so popular, because this amount is so much, $300,000, that gets that gets you headlines in game industry biz and a number of other outlets around the gaming industry. The problem, from G2A's perspective, is that they claim they didn't exist at this time. So they have a response immediately. And again, as we talked about messaging earlier in this video, they again come off very defensively here. Developer demands $300,000 from G2A for something that happened before G2A even existed. And they go on and on in their uh, claim. And they, you see here a, a picture of domain for sale. They link to what it looked like at the beginning of 2013. And this is all well and good. This is all very interesting. They've got uh, essentially a public dispute happening in real time through various articles and blog posts online. Now, as a lawyer, I will tell you I recommend to my clients all the time that you don't get into these fights on social media. You don't get into a fight on Twitter or through your blog posts or anywhere else, not only because you put things in writing that maybe you don't want in writing later on, but also because they can be used against you. They can be taken out of context. And somebody like me on virtual legality can start analyzing your messaging, which clearly was made so quickly in response to what Subnautica asked for on Twitter and through these articles like GameIndustry.biz, that it doesn't look like it was vetted properly through public relations channels or through legal channels. But the point is, at this point in time, earlier this week, we've got somebody claiming a significant amount of money from G2A. We've got G2A saying, hey, we didn't exist. And we're going to get to where this story, I think, ends at the end of this video, just to kind of close the loop here for you on this particular instance. But I had a number of people on social media come to me and say, hey, Rick, can you do a virtual legality on this? Because I don't understand whether or not G2A actually has an obligation to go and follow through with this $300,000. And so I looked at it. I looked at the issue. This is when it originally came to my attention. 
And the unfortunate fact about what we're looking at right now is that they probably don't. If G2A just came out next year or whenever they wanted to do so and said, hey, you know, we know we promised you 10 times whatever, uh, but we don't want to give it to you. Uh, or somebody comes and asks for a million dollars and maybe has a good claim on it uh, and we don't want to give it to you, then probably they're not going to have a legal problem. And the reason for that is the same reason that we've discussed earlier in virtual legality with respect to silly things like the Easy Allies betting special and more serious things like Colin Moriarty spending money on hotel and flights for a PAX panel that was canceled at virtually the last minute. And that's whether or not a contract exists. So let's take a look at the elements of a contract one more time because it's always useful to go over the fundamentals, the baselines when we're having these types of conversations. And I've pulled up here just a uslegal.com Different states are going to have mildly different versions of what the elements of a contract are, but basically everybody agrees on the fundamentals here. You have to have an offer. You have to have acceptance. You have to have consideration. We're going to talk about that because that's what the issue is here. You have to have a mutuality of obligation. Both sides have to do something. And you have to have the capacity to enter into the contract. Then they add here in some certain, certain, certain circumstances, you have to have a written instrument. Those tend to be things that are really expensive or really long-term, more than a year. Uh, but consideration is where the hang-up here is. So I've pulled up the definition of consideration here from U.S. Legal again, and it is succinct. It doesn't cover everything that you would learn about this topic over an entire semester of Contracts 101 in law school. But virtual legality is like a little mini law school contracts class. So we can at least get the overall perspective so that we understand what's missing here. So they talk about consideration. They say each party to a contract must provide something of value that induces the other to enter into the agreement. The law calls this exchange of values consideration. The value exchange need not consist of currency. It doesn't have to be money that you're changing hands with. Instead, it may consist of a promise to perform an act that one is not legally required to do or a promise to refrain from an act that one is legally entitled to do. For example, if a rich uncle promises to give his nephew a new sports car if he refrains from smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol for five years, the law deems both the uncle's promise and the nephew's forbearance lawful consideration. In other words, the nephew had the right to drink and smoke cigarettes, and if he chooses not to do so on the reliance that his uncle's going to give him a sports car, the law will enforce that. Now, there might be a written instrument requirement. There might be some other things that pop up. But the general rule is if you have a right to do something and you don't do it, then you can have a situation where a contract was formed. And in the same way, if you promise to do something in exchange for another promise, it doesn't have to be $100 that changes hands. It just has to be something that would cost you, that you otherwise have to give or that you have to prevent yourself from doing that you would otherwise have the right to do. In this particular case, G2A appears to be offering 10 times the amount of money for the developers and publishers to do what exactly? They don't have to do anything. They're not doing anything that requires them to act any differently in their lives or in the way that they're operating their business. They're essentially just having to turn in information and try to get 10 times the amount of money from G2A. So looking at this from 30,000 feet, I look at this and say, well, there probably isn't a contract here. Uh, and if there isn't a contract here, that means at the end of the day, if G2A were just to say later on, now nah, we're not going to pay that money, you're not going to have a lawsuit that you're going to be able to pursue against them. So you say to yourself, well, why why would they do this? Why would they make this promise? And why would they choose to pay it out if they don't legally have to? And the answer to that is something that you've heard in virtual legality a lot, which is the law is not the be-all and end-all of why these businesses do what they do or why they promise what they promise. In the first instance, 
the reason G2A makes this promise when it does is because so much heat is coming down on it over this summer because of a number of different issues, uh, potential lawsuits, things of that nature, where they want to get some good press. This is a public relations play where they say, hey, we want to say we're going to take care of these developers and publishers and you shouldn't hate us. You should love us because we're performing a good service and certainly a customer facing service, provided you don't have your key canceled on you and your credit card otherwise challenged. And because we're doing that, we're willing to put more money on the table to protect developers and publishers. So please love us and think highly of our brand. Now, Maybe $60,000 is fine. Maybe $300,000 is fine. But if something were to come along that would actually break the company, somebody's got a million dollars they can prove in chargebacks, and so G2A would owe $10 million on this promise, I think you'd quickly find that G2A would say, no, we're not necessarily going to pay that out. But why would they pay out those smaller amounts if they don't legally have to? Because, again, it's useful for them in terms of marketing. You don't want to necessarily create a problem here. You've made a very public promise. And if you have to eventually welch on that promise and say, no, we're not going to do that, even if you can't get sued for it, that essentially has probably a, multi a multiplying effect on the public relations benefit that you've potentially got from this blog post. You'll have an equally, if not more, problematic effect in terms of the negative perspective if you ultimately welch on the promise that you've made. So you want to keep that promise if you can just for marketing purposes, just in terms of going out there into the world. And so I think that's why you see G2A even trying to abide by some of this stuff, hiring an independent accountant to work on the $60,000 or potentially slow playing it until people forget about the promise, depending on how you feel about G2A. But that's why this happens, even in the absence of a legal obligation. And you do see that in the video game industry and in other industries and businesses as well, where you've potentially got a legal obligation, but it's not just the legal obligations that are governing how the company operates. And that's something, if it's the only thing you take away from this video or podcast, that's what I'd ask you to take away, is that companies operate for other reasons outside of the four corners of a contract that they've entered into, outside the EULA or the licensing arrangement, for other reasons that they may not be legally obligated to, but because it is deemed to be useful to them by their management, by their officers, or by their board. And that's why you can see these promises be made. But at the end of the day, if you're a developer, if you're a publisher that says, all right, I'm going to go get my 10 times money from G2A, absolutely pursue it if you want to. But understand that if it, the number gets high enough or if you just don't trust G2A at all, then at the end of the day, they might not have to pay you if they don't want to. And that's really where a lot of this comes out. And to just button up the story we were talking about earlier, which was Subnautica's claim for $300,000, I will point you to the Kotaku article that was released late yesterday that says developer fumes about key seller G2A but admits he was wrong about $300,000 complaint. On Monday, game developer Charlie Cleveland, who founded Subnautica and natural selection publisher Unknown Worlds, told sketchy game reseller G2A that they owe him a fat chunk of money, $300,000 to be exact, over stolen keys for natural selection too. Two days later, Cleveland told Kotaku today that he erred in his Monday claim, but added that he remains upset about G2A's business model. G2A had denied being responsible for the stolen Natural Selection 2 keys, saying that they hadn't sold them. This article continues with, It does appear that G2A is right. Cleveland told Kotaku today, citing G2A's denial, that they were the source of $30,000 worth of charges tied to stolen keys for Natural Selection 2 in 2013. They weren't the source of these original $30,000 in keys. It doesn't look like they were selling gray market keys at the time we had all those chargebacks, but they've been doing it ever since. So that's the end of this particular story. The Subnautica developer was wrong on what, would, what appeared on G2A. And 
interestingly enough, you haven't seen a lot of developers necessarily take up G2A on their request right now. I think some of that stems from a lack of trust for G2A, potentially what data you might accidentally be giving them about an audit of your system, of your marketplace. And if you don't trust another company, you have to be very careful with access to your books and records, access to your facilities and things of that nature. So that could be part of the story here. But ultimately, since G2A doesn't necessarily have a contractual obligation to pay out the amounts that it has promised to pay out in its blog posts, then as a company, as a developer or a publisher, you have to take that into account as well. So maybe it isn't that much of a surprise that more people haven't gone and pursued this 10 times recompense for the problems that they think G2A has caused. And we'll continue to follow this story because it's an interesting one. And if more developers come out, especially with better and more evidenced claims against G2A, you could get into a situation where at bare minimum, they have significantly bad press against them if they have to welch on this promise. But until then, that's the situation right now. And we wanted to talk about it in virtual legality because a number of people asked us about the contractual commitment here. And because I don't see one, that's an important piece of the puzzle as well. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this, please like, please subscribe to the channel. We're talking about these things all the time. If you watch it on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.